Netcasts you love. From people you trust. This is Twit. Bandwidth for Security Now is provided by AOL Radio at AOL.com slash podcasting. This is Security Now with Steve Gibson, episode 178 for January 8th, 2009. Listener feedback number 57. Security Now is brought to you by Audible.com. For your free audiobook and a whole lot more, visit audiblepodcast.com slash security now. It's time for Security Now, number 178, in a continuing series on and counting. Yes, yeah. Steve Gibson is here, the security guru. Hi, Steve. <laughs> hey, Leo. Great to be with you. I'm feeling a little bit less like a guru than usual because I said something completely wrong last week that just really pissed me off. I know uh, you hate it when you do that. I really do. And, you know, there's no excuse for it. I was... Feeling rushed, I was worried that we were going to have a, a show that was too long. As it was, it was our longest ever. It was two hours. Um, <laughs> have you had any complaints? Because I haven't. <laughs> uh, oh no! Actually, I I I was gratified. I was also a little worried that it was a non-security show, right? Largely, and I got a ton of positive feedback from it. Some people said they thought it was the best podcast we'd ever done. Which you know, I don't want to worry people. We're not going to go wander off the reservation and and no longer do security, but. You know, anyway, the, the, what I said that was wrong, that just ups, really annoys me, was that I was talking about the, the in this whole SSL cracked deal, which I'm going to cover clearly and carefully in detail next week, because it's a big issue in, in looking carefully at what the researchers did. They did some really clever, fun, and interesting things, and we've never really talked about certificate chains. I've referred to them sort of in passing, but we've never done, you know, really explained what that's all about. And there were a bunch of questions that were raised that I saw in in preparing the, the Q&A questions for this week. So that's our topic for next week. But what I said that was wrong was that it was the signature of the root certificate that was the problem. And I mean, I knew immediately when when it was brought to my attention that I had said that that it, that I had what I had, that I had misspoken. It's the it's the 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 hashing algorithm of the certificates signed by the root authority that is weak if it's MD5. So it's like, oh, now it is the case that that root certificates that are that have that have chosen to sign themselves with MD5 are probably also signing the ones they issue with MD5. So, you know, there's there's that chance, but that's really not the nature of the vulnerability. And also there were people who are arguing that it's it's only certificates signed from now on that are the problem, not any that have that already exist, and that's actually not true. It's the nature of uh, of cryptographic weaknesses that they grow over time. Anyway, I'm going to cover this. It'll it's the topic of next week's show. We're going to go like you know in true to form, no rush. Cover it from front to back so that everybody who is listening is going to completely understand this whole chain of trust and certificates and signing and all of that. Um, but in the meantime, there has been an immediate reaction from somebody who is who is creating Firefox extensions. There's a, an outfit called the, the URL is code from the seventies.org. <laughs> I like that. <laughs> if you just put in code from the seventies into Google, it'll, it's the first link that comes up. There's a, a, a Firefox add in called SSL blacklist. And it's now as of, as of new year's Eve at version 4.0, what he just added in version 4.0 is a, a check for whether MD5, the weakened, um, no longer really very secure hashing algorithm, whether MD5 is in use during the visit to a secure page, and you'll be notified if it is. That, of course, doesn't mean that this is a problem, but it means that, you know, that, that the, known, the known exploit could be employed because the known exploit uses MD5. So apparently about 
of issued SSL certificates out on the internet today are use are signed with MD5. 40%? And- 14%. Oh, 14. Oh, good. Yeah, you scared 14. me. VeriSign <laughs> uh, has responded that they own the rapid SSL guides that were the, the target of this particular problem. Um, they have, have responded that they will replace anyone's certificate free of charge that, 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 w- that was signed using MD5. So essentially what it means is that if you wanted to sort of help clean up the Internet, you could install this SSL blacklist 4.0 into Firefox um, from code from the seventies.org. And if you visited sites where you got a notice, what you could do is just notify the webmaster. Hey, just thought you should know Uh, you're probably going to be hearing this from more people in the future. You know, you can fix your certificate, go ask your, the people who issued your, your SSL certificate for an update signed with SHA one and, you know, then you're not going to get anybody else bugging you saying, hey, you know, you, this is, you, you know, misunderstanding what this really means about whether their, their site is secure or not. So to clarify, it's not the root certificates that are the issue. It's the certificates assigned to websites by root authorities that are used using MD5 as their Correct. Uh, as their uh, Correct. So, for example, the root certificate could be signed by SHA1, yet they could be signing the certificates they issue with MD5 or vice versa. Although, so, as you, you know, point out, if somebody's using MD5 as a root certificate certifier, they're probably also using MD5 for everything else. Yes, yeah. yes. Okay. And so, you know, if people had deleted those certificates, then they would be like way safe in the case that it was <laughs> that, the, that the same certificate algorithm was being used for the root and for the certificates being issued, which is likely the case. But, um, you know, anyway, that I, I'm I'm annoyed that I got that wrong. So, so for the record, we're fixed, and we're going to do a whole show on it next week to really explain and clarify what all this is about. Excellent. Excellent. Um, excellent. Sandboxy, I have mentioned, it was in beta with the write dropping feature. It's now in public release. So anybody who is using Sandboxy may want to upgrade. I would think you would to three point three four. Just went public a day or two ago. And um, Ronan has added the drop my rights feature so that so that anything you sandbox is has its rights stripped even a little bit more thoroughly. I'm really impressed with with what Ronan has done uh, than than drop my rights does. So it's a it's a really nice addition to Sandboxy so that, for example, you know, if you're running email or your web browser, it has even fewer rights than sandboxy had already removed from it. He was, he was stripping some, but he wasn't taking away admin group um, membership as, as he is now and doing the things that dropping the, the, the rights does. So that's a nice update. Many people uh, commented to me about the YouTube video showing drive latency increase oh, yeah. when you shout at drives. <laughs> it's the strangest thing ever. Oh my goodness. Yes. So I just wanted to acknowledge all the email that, that we, we received. Um, <laughs> we've sort of referred to this before. I've talked about how, how track density has grown so high in, in current drives that, that, you know, the drives are doing everything they can to stay on track using embedded servo technology which co- provides constant feedback as to the position of the head and so it literally you know follows the tracks around so you, so, you don't think that you're saying this is true that it, that shouting at the drives really does increase oh latency? absolutely it's true <laughs> it's not a scam it's not a no, joke it's no, not no. like the popping a popcorn with a cell phone video it's, no no it's you know <laughs> so the, it, 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 it's low frequency high energy acoustics that that hits the drive and that tends to knock the head off track and what, and so it will, I mean, it makes sense. I I, I can't guarantee you that, that, you know, I I haven't tried shouting at a drive. You you could conceive of a mechanism where this really would. Oh, absolutely. In fact, a very good friend of mine um, discovered that the fans in their servers, the vibration from the fans were causing their, the, the data rate from their drive to drop from hard drive drives to drop just because of the particular nature of, of, of the mechanics. So, so what is happening when you shout at your drive, 
which I do not recommend anyone do at home. <laughs> I shot at it all the time. And watch yeah. out the computer. There's a drive in there. Yeah, okay, right. Um, if you want to shout, you want to use a high voice or a low voice? <laughs> uh, a low voice will have, will have more acoustic energy. So, so like this. So, it will, and it'll interact at the right frequency with, with, with the rotation rate of the drive. So, you anyway, the idea is that when you're shouting at it, you are vibrating the drive and causing the head to have trouble staying on track. The reason the latency increases is that the head misses looking for the beginning of the sector or goes off sector while it's trying to read. And so the drive aborts that transfer, loses a revolution, and then tries to do it again when that sector comes back around. So, I mean, it, it absolutely makes sense that shouting at your drive could cause its, its latency to increase, which is to say its data rate to decrease. It's not scared. It's just so, trembling. Don't do that. Okay. Um, also, someone pointed out, and I love this, that one of my very, very favorite antique sci-fi movies of all time, This Island Earth. Um, don't know if you know the, know the, one, the no. movie. I've seen it. I can't, I mean, you know, every, I watch it every few years because it's just so good. But what they pointed out was that it was a, an, a super capacitor that was the original hook at the, in, the, in the beginning of the plot. And I had, you know, the moment I read this, I was like, oh, my God, of course, because I know the plot really well. But in this plot, there's this uh, scientist, Cal Meacham, who is who is a, you know, a high tech aerospace scientist guy. And they get some parts from a supplier and they order a really what they expect to be a huge capacitor. You know, I don't remember now what the specs, a thousand microfarads at, you know, 200 volts. And what they receive is this little tiny bead <laughs> with two connections on it. And they're like, well, this can't be right. But they test it. And it is what the specification calls for. It's a supercapacitor. And, you know, that's like way smaller than it should be. And they stick it on this machine and crank the voltage up to see like, at what point it breaks down. So anyway, I got a kick out of that. And this is like 1950 something. I don't remember, like 52 or 57 or something. I mean, it was way old. But, you know. That was the example that they they chose for demonstrating, you know, advanced alien technology. But that sh- that shows that the idea or the concept of supercapacitor is not anything new. Correct. In other Correct. words, we've, in fact, we've hypothesized about these. Which this is the this is the first we've been able to make. Is that it? Well, um, there are a lot of people who are working on them. It's the it's the high voltage claim of ah. EE that is the most controversial because that's the most tantalizing, as we know. That you know the 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 energy storage goes up with the square of the voltage. So every time you know if you can double the voltage, you you quadruple the energy storage. And so ultra capacitors have existed for a long time. Normally they they've been called supercapacitors because they're big. And for example, they're used in consumer uh, electronics to to like keep CMOS memory alive over time. Oh okay, sure <coughs> okay. Um, I did want to mention that we are one week from um, January 15th, which is when the orders for the the PDP-8 system that I mentioned last week, the, the single board PDP-8 computer, are sort of informally closing. At that point, Bob's going to add them up and begin placing his orders to, to fulfill the kits. So I just wanted to let our, no- our users know that, I mean, our listeners know that by the time they hear us again, which will be actually on the 15th, um, it'll sort of be too late. So what's the website anyone, again? That was boy, uh, spare time gizmos. Very good. Dot com. And, and extensive notes, uh, from in last week's episode with links and things. So the show notes for episode 177, remember I, I also created a, a tiny URL or, or a snip URL, S N I P com slash S N one seventy seven. Yeah, and we uh, I apologize for not getting those in the uh, show notes uh, when when we put it out, but we uh, from now on we'll make sure that we give links to your show notes uh, every time we put it out our show notes. And I'm keeping more uh, more elaborate show notes as we talk, so uh, we'll have we'll have better links in future. I apologize. That's one of the things we really want to work on is getting uh, more you've done a very good job of getting textual version uh, versions of the audio content out there. And I think that's really important. Well, I know that people really love it. In fact, I've forgotten to update the the security now page with the links to Lilane's transcripts 
uh, for a couple of days and people said, Hey, where are the transcripts? Like, Oh, I just forgot to update the page. Yeah, so then yeah. I just copied my copy to the server and it was all live again. So I know that people really do like them and rely on them. And about three or 4,000 copies are, are downloaded every week. It's kind of ironic. I have for a long time been giving out, giving out, um, uh, you know, in speeches and stuff saying, if you do a blog, you should also do audio. You should also do video. You should do every medium. And particularly if you do podcasts and, and, and video, because Google can't search audio. So uh, it's really important to have textual matter right. that people can use not only to get the links, but to follow along that can be searched by Google and all that stuff. And you've always done a good job. I have to follow your model into our other shows because it's really the, the right way to go. Well, it's, you know, it's not inexpensive, but, yeah. you know, yeah. I, I'm happy to pay for Elaine's quality because, yeah. I mean, she, she really is a stickler for details, yeah. which I which I really appreciate. Yeah, we may have to call Elaine and say, how many shows can you do? <laughs> she might well, have a new career. <laughs> the podcast. She would love it. Yeah. She would love yeah. it. She's really good. Um, and I have what is perhaps one of the oddest spin stories of you know, in a hundred and oh come on, you've had some pretty odd ones. This is I've gonna... had some pretty odd ones, but this one may this one may still you know it's definitely up there. Really, this is from Mike Roberts, whose subject was looks rather benign. The, the subject was Spinrite recovers from burned hard drive. Okay, so he says hello. I recently had one of my older computers fail to boot. When attempting to start up, the motherboard would only issue a series of beeps. I figured the first thing would be to replace each part piece by piece to determine which part was causing the problem, but replacing each piece failed to solve the problem. Next, I decided to move the jumper on my motherboard to clear the CMOS. Reasonable. As I was turning the machine back on, I accidentally dropped a screwdriver into it, and it began, began emitting sparks, and parts began to catch on fire. Within seconds, my power was shorted, and the entire house lost power. Without even thinking, I grabbed a nearby can of Mountain Dew. He'd probably been drinking, he'd probably been drinking too much of that. You know, I don't know if anyone knows. That's seriously caffeine-loaded. So, without even thinking, I grabbed a nearby can of Mountain Dew and splashed it on the burning computer. Oh, my God. Because I realize <laughs> now that this was an electrical fire, and pouring this on earlier, before the power went out, would have been disastrous. After turning the power back on from the basement, I went to assess the damage. Needless to say, pretty much everything was destroyed beyond repair. Even if it wasn't all burned and or melted, it was, it was, covered, with covered, it was now covered in Mountain Dew. The files on my hard drive were not... The files on my hard drive were not critically important, but I wanted them. I took the hard drive, pulled the melted plastic off, and wiped the stickiness and black burn marks off. I connected the hard drive to a clip that I had pulled off an external hard drive and tried to connect it to my computers. Neither my Windows, Mac, or Linux machines could find the drive. So I decided to try one more thing. I connected the drive to a computer and started up Spinrite. Oh, man. To my utter disbelief, Spinrite found the drive, and I ran it at level 2 for data recovery. After Spinrite was finished, the drive was recognized by my computers, and I recover, recovered every single file. Thank you. P.S. I love the show. Keep it up. P.P.S. I'm going to stop drinking so much Mountain Dew. Oh, goodness. <laughs> and yep. don't drop a, a screwdriver into your computer. That's a bad idea. Bad idea. Wow. What a great... That is a hoot. What so a great story. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. All right. We've got a lot of questions for Steve. Let's see. Uh, 12 questions, good and true, including the PayPal solution of the week, the brilliantly obvious in retrospect idea of the week. But before we do that, I've got a great idea for you, and that's audible.com. Audible, that's the place to go to get your audio book fix. I'm an audiobook junkie, and if you go to audiblepodcast.com slash security now, I can hook you up, man. I can get I can get you I can get you a credit toward the audiobook of your choice. Just sign up for the gold plan. That gives you a book a month, a subscription. I actually have platinum, which means two books a month. Uh, and I really like it. I mean it does save me money, but it's also uh, I, I look forward to my uh, kind of uh, the rollover date every month because then I get two more books and I'm so excited. I, it's hard to choose just one book. You're going to have to do that, though, if you go to uh, right now and go to audible.com. 
I'm sorry, audiblepodcast.com slash security now and uh, choose your book. There's some really excellent choices. I was looking for, and I, and I, unfortunately they don't have uh, that sci-fi movie. Uh, was that ever a book? The, the one you were talking about? Oh, you know, I don't know if it was. I was looking for it. They have a very good selection of science fiction and fantasy. And since we talk a lot about science fiction, I always try to pick a good sci-fi book for you uh, to listen to. Um, we mentioned, and I, I have to say, I think I get some credit for this. In the customer favorite section, Peter F. Hamilton, Pandora's ah. star. Because last week we mentioned that they, in fact, now do have a Judas Unchained and Pandora's star. Uh, the two, the very good two book series, and this would be a great way to start. I'm, I'm telling you, this is gonna, this is, you are gonna get hooked because not only are these incredible books, but listening to them on Audible really uh, makes it an experience. Narrated by a guy named John Lee. Let me play a little bit, just so you'll hear kind of uh, uh, what what it sounds like. But I would suggest you take advantage of the offer and download the book and listen to the whole thing. Thirty seven hours worth. I can't wait. I've already. I just read this book, and I can't wait to. Peter Hamilton has never written a small book. I don't, th- I don't think he's capable right. of it. That's <laughs> um, not playing back, or it is playing back, but I'm not hearing it. I must have knocked something loose. Well, I'll just i'll I'll leave it to your imagination. Or you can, you know the nice thing about this, you can go to audible.com, search for any book, even if you're not logged in, not a member, and listen to a preview, so you get an idea of what it's going to sound like. But really, the best way to try it is to uh, is to get the full book and listen to the whole thing. My recommendation of the week, Peter Hamilton, Pandora's Star, one of the great books in general, even better, from audiblepodcast.com slash security now. We thank them so much for their support of the Security Now show. 37 What I, I love about that book, too, is he, he takes us through the, the evolution of an entirely alien life form. From like, you know, before it existed, how this thing evolved to be so unlike us. And, I mean, you know, it's just, just fantastic science fiction. Yeah, because a lot of times in science fiction, the aliens are at least someone you could communicate with or, you know, they're often have, bipedal. Have empathy for, yeah. yeah. And in this in this case, uh, and it's not that they're evil. This is, this is what I really like. They're not evil. Right. They're just what they are. They're just different. Very, very different. But that happens to be kind of bad for us. <laughs> Yeah, they don't have they don't share our values. <laughs> well, it's got that whole eco thing, too, because they're right. an incredibly dirty culture but, in terms of, you know, no concept of ecology. I mean, so it just makes everyone who encounters them just shudder. Right. And yet from their point of view, they don't need to be. That, that's that's just not in their uh, racial makeup. Yeah. Because they they do perfectly well in polluted environments. I think I got to read that again. <laughs> me too. Now you got to make me one. Re- <laughs> really good. See, listen to it. You can listen to it. Pandora <laughs> Star and Judas Unchained available now on audiblepodcast.com slash security. I think I would guess they've got three Peter F. Hamiltons. They didn't have any in last year. I think that they're probably doing all of them. And I'm well. Really I would excited. love Fallen Dragon. Fallen Dragon. That's is, the one. As, as a single book, yeah, to introduce you to Peter Hamilton is just perfect. They asked me uh, what they what uh, if you know I had any books that I thought they should do, and that I said Peter F. Hamilton. So oh, yay! I Good. don't know if I get credit or not, but uh, I'm going to take credit anyway. Take it. All right. Are you ready for the Let's first go. question of the day, Mister Stephen? And it comes from someone who wishes to remain anonymous. He's in the business of vehicular travel. Wants to comment on what we talked about last week, the ultra capacitor from eStore. Dear Stephen Leo, first I want to tell you, Security Now has kept me a company and awake on many a long business trip. I hope the show continues for many more episodes with Steve's crack the whip attitude about recording every week. I'm sure it will. <laughs> uh, he says regarding eStore, which by the way is E-E-S-T-O-R dot com. I'm heavily, not that you'll find anything there. But there is at least a website. Yeah, actually, okay. they didn't have a they didn't have a website up last. They were saying once they finally got it done, then they would have something to talk about. But in in the meantime, they're just sort of you know keeping their head down and oh, they don't even have a site. Yeah. Oh well, if you if you Google E E S T O R, you'll find many sites talking about them. Yes, exactly. Now this guy knows what he's talking about. I'm heavily involved in energy storage research with one of the major companies producing hybrid electric drivetrains. You correctly pointed out in your show that energy storage is the key technology to making hybrids or pure electric cars a commercial success. We were visited by eStore's principals eight or nine years ago. Yeah. The credentials of the people that started the company were very impressive. Their product claims were fantastic. 
Although their general methods sounded plausible, first red flag, fantastic claims without any accompanying samples or test data. We said, let us test a sample of any kind, even just a single cell, and we'd love to talk more. They were to have something within a year. Since that time, there have been only fleeting press releases or news stories every couple of years. I've never seen any evidence of samples or example systems. I've discussed their claims with ultracapacitor and battery experts at a number of conferences. Most experts have doubts about the physics associated with their claims. There's another issue. Even if they're able to produce their ultracapacitor as claimed, you pointed out that the magic of V squared, as it, res- as it relates to the amount of energy stored in a capacitor, E-Store's remarkable energy density is achieved by operating at over 3,000 volts. There are plenty of power electronics devices that operate at these voltages, used by electric utilities for transmission and distribution of power. The trouble is, these devices are very large and very expensive. There would be huge challenges with building a power controller small enough and cheap enough that still would safely operate at these voltages in a passenger vehicle, or even in a large truck. So I hate to rain on the parade, but I don't have high hopes that eStore is going to be a game-changing solution anytime soon. But I do have high hopes for ultracapacitors in general. There are a number of good products out there, from companies like Maxwell, Nescap, Nippon, and others. We've used UltraCaps as the only energy storage in a number of hybrid vehicles with great results. They don't have enough energy for electric-only vehicles, but they do have nearly limitless life, as you mentioned. Keep up the good work. Note, please don't use my name or company name on the air if you use any of this in one of your programs. My company has rather strict communications policies. Yeah, not that he really said anything very, you know, controversial. No. Um, I don't disagree with any of that. Um, I'm just hopeful. Um, you know, the, the the patent looked like it was about as authentic as could be. You know, the fact that they've got this contract with the government, I mean, I don't know what it means. It, it, you know, maybe that is a good thing with, uh, you know, mil- military aerospace applications. And certainly the the Zen car folks in Canada are are reportedly gearing up to use this. So, one presumes that these problems have been solved and somehow they've they've worked out how they can deal with the 3500 volts i mean it is it is a challenge to you need to step up the voltage for example of your of your charging source which might just be you know 110 or or 220 volt uh line power up to 3500 volts in order to get the pressure essentially to pressurize the capacitor at at that voltage, and then you do need to be able to to step it down and meter it in order to uh, use it for your drivetrain. And if you're going to use regenerative braking, which everyone wants to, you need to do you need to be able to have that step up capability in the car also, not just in a in a standalone external charging station. But if you're going to you know hit the brakes, you want to put the the you want to put the momentum from the car back into the capacitor. So anyway, I just. Uh, it looked like, like like a great um, and interesting uh, piece of work that we saw patented, and uh, you know we'll keep tracking it. If if anything happens with it, I will let our listeners know because there was a lot of interest in this also from our talking about it last week. Yeah, well, I'm glad we raised the subject anyway, and, and maybe somebody else is also. I know many others are also working on this. Maybe somebody else will have uh, come come to the forefront as well. Yeah, I saw one piece of email. Uh, from someone who thought I had just absolutely lost my mind, uh, <laughs> falling falling into the peak oil mythology, as he called it, and it's like, well, okay, you know, I mean, I don't don't mean to get political. I I've read a bunch about it. It makes sense to me that uh, at some point in the not too distant future, uh, the world's increasing hunger, I mean, which is growing constantly we're going to have a hard time meeting demand. And that's all I was saying was that at some point prices are going to start really going up because the world's going to want more than producers are going to be able to produce. The question is, is that accurate or not? And again, we'll, we should know in a few years. Well, it's not like they're making any more oil. No, I mean, no one doubts that ultimately we're going to drain the earth of it. Uh, no one apparently doubts that there's about 2 trillion barrels total of which we've used 1 trillion uh, the question is, you know, do, do we are we in trouble in 200 years or are we in trouble in five years? Right. So, well, either way, I think we should be starting to think about it. Well, like, and then see, from I don't want to leave this problem for my grandkids. From an economic standpoint, it, it's unfortunately it's going to take energy costs increasing to make these alternative solutions 
economically viable. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. you know, nothing is as long as, as oil is as inexpensive as it is now. Right. Daniel Farrell, a researcher at the Imperial College in London, knows a thing or two about solar cells. Hi, Steve. I really enjoyed your discussion of supercapacitors when listening to the latest Security Now episode. You also touched on solar cells. Uh, This happens to be my area of research, and I'd be happy to discuss with you the most recent developments and concepts in the field. Some of the current buzzwords and phrases that I hope will get you interested are down and up conversion of photons, multi-junction, multi-band, and hot carrier solar cells, and molecular and organic-based concepts. I've just finished my PhD. I now work as a solar energy researcher at Imperial College in London. Love the show. I've been listening since 2005. You know, Ray Maxwell also got very excited uh, about what you were talking about, and he talked a little bit about a fusion project that's up there in Vancouver. You know, fusion is another one of those, um, you know, holy grails of energy. Yeah. Um, in fact, d- during my recent interest in alternative energy stuff, I took a look at the state of fusion. There's something called the, I think it's the Ignat- National Ignition Lab. <coughs> not not aptly named, I might add. I think probably they should consider a new name for that. Um, the National Ignition Lab is out of um, JPL up in Northern California. And it's fascinating to look at it, but it also gives you a sense for how far away we are from from having this stuff able to come online. I'm not I'm not hopeful unfortunately about fusion. The reason I wanted to to uh, to add uh Daniel's notion or or his, his dialogue about solar cells is just to have an opportunity to mention that I'm I'm extremely hopeful about solar cell technology in the future. It feels to me like it's sort of where digital cameras were when digital cameras first began to happen, I, I remember people, you know, as they began to happen, people were saying, gee, you know, you think I ought to get a digital camera? And I and my advice was, I said, well, if you can really use it and really need it right now, then yes. Um, but you need to be prepared for being really upset a year from now <laughs> when something better and comes along yeah right Rem- i mean remember this the the dramatic i mean look at the dramatic cost and performance curve that digital cameras went through oh, yeah. over the last 10 years i mean they just got incredibly inexpensive you know the battery life shot up resolution shot up i mean it, it's just just transformative as opposed to for example a, a mature technology like you know existing um chemical slr photography which is just, it was done. My sense is that we are sort of in the same place with, with solar cell technology, that once we really, you know, bear down on this, we're going to see costs drop and efficiencies increase, which will be, you know, really um, significant for, you know, the alternative energy future. Yeah, yeah. It's, look, this is uh, all important stuff, and it's something that's uh, going to be on uh, people's minds in, uh, in the newspapers and the news uh, for the next many years, I think. So yep. it's, it's good that people like Daniel are out there studying it, doing what they can. James Ortega in Kokomo, Indiana, needs some YubiKey router configuration clarification. Steve, you mentioned in your show, uh, episode 177, that you use the YubiKey to secure your router. I contacted their technical support for instruction on how to do this. Still no response from them so far. Can you demonstrate in your show how to perform the password generation and authentication of the passwords with the router? Thanks. Well, there has been a lot of interest in this in this notion that I mentioned that um, uh, Stina has shared with me of the ability to switch the YubiKey from its its normal mode, which is a one-time password system based on a secret um, AES key buried in the YubiKey. Their personal, the personalization tool, which is available for free download from Yubico's site, it's able to change the key so that instead of giving a different password every time based on a, a secure cryptographic algorithm, it spits out a fixed, it like random looking and 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 certainly randomly generator pseudo randomly generator once a fixed long character string. The beauty of that is that it allows a a a simple little hardware token to produce a a string of gibberish 
that you just can't memorize when you look at it. I mean, you can't even type it in, probably, unless you really tried. And, and so that can be used anywhere and anytime in place of a, a you know, a, a shorter password that might be vulnerable to dictionary attack or guessing or somebody glancing at it and writing it down and so forth. So the one way that I mentioned of, of using it where it is, it is in use now is that it could be used as the pre-boot authentication password by TrueCrypt. So you have this on your keychain and and you you type that in, or, you know, you, you use the YubiKey to enter that into TrueCrypt in order to authenticate that, you know, something you have, one one um one type of authentication as you log into um and start up a a, a TrueCrypt whole drive encryption volume, or even to use it as the password inside Windows if you want to mount a TrueCrypt volume. Well, another way it can be used that we talked about is as a as as a Wi-Fi um, AES encryption key for WPA2, as it's called, but it's actually you know the AES cipher. Um, in that case, and this is what 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 James is asking about, you know. It's uh, it's not that you're using the YubiKey to to secure your router, but rather your your router's Wi-Fi um, radio. And and so the idea would be you you use you convert the YubiKey first using Yubico's um, personalization tool into this fixed static random gibberish. You then you you then use that when your router is when when you're setting up Wi-Fi and it asks you for your your WPA key, you would put the cursor in the field, touch the Yubico um, the YubiKey button, and it would type that into the router. Then would ask it for you again. So you you, you type it in again. Now you've set up your router with, with its WPA key um, from your YubiKey. Then you go to your various machines and and enter those. And the advantage, of course, is that it's it's you don't have to do any typing. It's incredibly difficult to to reproduce or or manage. And if a friend came over and wants to get on your Wi-Fi, you can just stick the key in, touch the button when 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 their Windows is prompting them for the Wi-Fi key, and it's it's entered. So it's a it's a neat solution. Very cool. And a lot of people love the idea. So there was a, there was a strong response that I that I saw in. In uh, in feedback responses uh, from talking about that too, I think that it it makes a lot of sense to a lot of people just to have something that they can touch, and it you know it zaps out a really long pseudo random string, which well, is the same every time. And we'll see a even better idea in just a little bit. Yep, coming up. <laughs> um, Mike, uh, I'm sorry, Mike Gilmore in uh, Cedar Rapids, Iowa, has a question about Microsoft's. Malicious software removal tool. Hey, guys, as I was listening to my uh, show, the show uh, 177 last week, something you said took me by surprise. You reported that the MSRT ran only at startup. For some reason, I thought it ran actively like an antivirus. This makes it sound like perhaps I should be booting each of my eight machines every day. Is that right? Nope, not a business. I'm just a really big geek. Eight machines. Thanks for spin right. Shields up. Wismo and other great tools, Mike. Um, actually, it's a little worse than that. The MSRT runs once a month oh. when you restart your system after Microsoft has given you a new a new version. So it only runs when there's an update. Right. Well, exactly. And the idea is that monthly Microsoft is maturing the tool to add awareness of and, and removability of new malware. The the one that they just released added two new programs, and on their on the MSRT site, they've got a list, for example, of all the stuff that it knows about and is able to remove. So what Microsoft is doing is essentially they're adding awareness of new problems that they encounter to this tool, and then running it once just to remove any that may be on the system or that your system may have acquired in the intervening month. So they're not trying to be running all the time like an antivirus system. There is a tool that you can run on demand, a version of this that you can get from Microsoft from the MSRT uh, region of their site. 
And so, you know, that is an option that, that Mike has if he really wants to run this all the time. But my sense is that an AVG, which is updating themselves all the time and which is running constantly, is probably doing the job for him as just as well. Okay. Yeah, so it's I'm I guess Microsoft didn't want to add to the complexity of machines by having it running all the time as an antivirus does. And I think they probably don't want to stomp on the AV right. industry either. Right. Right. It's not in other words this isn't a, this is not an antivirus folks. It's just every once in a while we're going to check and see if there's anything really disgusting going on. Right. Microsoft site does say that they explicitly update this monthly. Right. So I think we can assume we're going to get a new one every month. And the only issue is uh, you may be getting, in between the updates, you may be getting uh, some spyware on your system, right? Exactly. And it ain't going to find any sooner. So that's just another reason to have some other uh, anti-malware software on there. Elliot Kopp in St. Louis is worried about why Steve dislikes AT&T. I didn't know you disliked AT&T. Steve and Lee, I was listening to 175 the other day. I'm a little behind. You mentioned you didn't like AT&T. I use them as my landline and internet provider because they're the cheapest in my area. I'm not aware of them doing anything wrong, traffic, traffic filtering or logging or so on. I'd love to hear your thoughts as to why you don't like them. If they're doing something naughty, I will switch immediately. Well, I'm an AT&T. I have my home services AT&T. I don't, that's, that's the local carrier. Right. I thought that I ought to clarify this, because yeah. I, I have spoken ill of AT&T, but it's only that, it's only that their broadband technology was not up to speed as soon as as Verizon and Sprint's was, right. they were using edge technology for broadband, whereas EVDO, which was available over with Verizon and Sprint, was much faster by like more than a factor of four. Oh, I see. So you're talking about the 3G, the wireless uh, speeds. Exactly. Yeah. That That's all it is. Nothing to do with their behavior or traffic filtering or logging or anything else. It's just that, in fact, I was over on Singular, which, of course, AT&T acquired, and I deliberately left Singular and moved to Verizon because I wanted the EVDO broadband speed. Right. Right. Yes, I think Sprint and Verizon are still the fastest. AT&T's new yes. HSTPA is, is, is okay. It's not as fast, I don't think. And it's not as in, in as many markets, but if you're using an iPhone as I do, you don't have any. You don't have any choice. I was going to say, and it's it's one of the reasons that the iPhone has been criticized right. is that you know right. it's it's wireless, it's broadband is just not as fast right. as you can get over on um, on Verizon and Sprint. The story was Apple approached Verizon and got turned down. Ugh. So there you go. And Verizon is probably going Ugh, too because the iPhone is <laughs> it's sold a few. They've sold a yeah. few. Yeah, Bert. In Redford, Michigan, keeps wanting to install the ill-fated Windows Service Pack 3. This is for uh, Windows XP. Thank you for supplying a venue that allows the common Joe, Joe the hacker, to get an answer to a question. No one else seems to have an answer for it. I brag about you all the time. Question, what is going on with Windows XP Service Pack 3? Like you, I've attempted to install it, on my case, in two different systems. They both bombed. I had to back out of the update. Can you mention... uh, what Microsoft is or is not doing to make this usable, even if no news is available. I feel like my systems are vulnerable without this update, but but, but helpless. I can't do anything about it. Yes, I've looked around. I, I can't find any indication from Microsoft that they're going to address this. You know, this is the last service pack for XP. There's not going to be a service pack for, unless maybe they do one to fix the problem with service pack three. But I'm in the same condition that Bert is. There are several machines I have where I cannot put SP3 on. Um, the good news is that you really don't need it. You can keep current with the patches. All SP3 was was sort of a catch-up for, you know, a, a an omnibus package for, that did um, all of the prior updates in uh, bundled in one. Yeah, I uh, I wonder what's going on. I've been able to install Service Pack 3 on all my machines. Well, I only have one XP machine, but... Oh, no, two. I have two XP machines, and both are running SP3. But I do get this call a lot uh, on the radio show, and uh, there's, I there doesn't seem to be any answer. It's just... And Microsoft never, like, fixes broken service packs. They right. just sort of limp along and then replace it ultimately. But this one, as far as I know, is not going to be replaced. Remember, Service Pack 2 was even worse. At least, it seems, in most cases with Service Pack 3, it doesn't, you know, what Service Pack 2 would just give you a blue screen of death, permanent blue screen of death. You'd be, you'd be out of luck. At least uh, with Service Pack 3, it can you can roll back. But he's right. He, he needs the update for security reasons, right? 
Well, no. Um, I mean, my, Microsoft has moved forward, and so I've you 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 need to say no. I do not want SP three. Oh, but then there's still okay. There, there. Yeah, you don't need Service Pack three. You can still install all the other incremental updates moving forward. I get it. Okay, so you'll be as secure. Yes, you will. Okay. I wanted to mention, I, I should have mentioned it in the security news, but uh, it's, it's, it's relevant that uh, Twitter, I don't know if you know this, Twitter got hacked. In fact, Twitter has been the series, uh, uh, subject of a series of attacks uh, lately. There was a phishing attack where somebody's right. account got hacked and, uh, and they were sending out direct messages to everybody they knew saying, hey, have you seen this funny site about you? And when you click the link, you get a login page that looks just like a request for your regular Twitter credentials. Uh-oh. And then people, of course, get don't look at the URL and get fished. I didn't fall for that. I did get the the direct message, but I didn't fall for that. I'm I know better than that. I look at the URL, um, and then uh, but there was a much more serious hack uh, a couple of days ago, and I got I did get bit by that. A uh, kid in uh, on the East Coast. He's 18 years old. He admits it. In fact, yeah, there was an interview today with the Wired uh, uh, magazine, Wired uh, News. Um, used a brute force attack on an admin account. He had written his little tool that goes through the dictionary and tries every dictionary where is the password. An administrator at Twitter, Crystal, her password was happiness. Oh, goodness. Kid went to bed. He didn't really know what Twitter was. He went to bed, woke up in the morning. He had, he had access to Crystal's account. Now, he said, I don't know what to do with it. So he went to a hacker forum and said, hey, Anybody who wants uh, access to uh, Twitter and uh, wants to change some passwords, go ahead, uh, send me a note. Well, who's, who's, whose account would you like? Barack Obama was the first, of course. Fox News. Uh, um, uh, Rick Sanchez from CNN. Britney Spears. So he gave, these, he gave their credentials to these people. They uh, logged in as Britney Spears, for instance, and put a lewd message up. Uh, you know, put yeah, Obama, everybody... Twitter caught on to it pretty quickly and deleted the bad messages uh, and has reset the passwords. I lost access to my account, but I don't think anybody posted on it. Uh, I, I guess I was one of the people that the, that the kids on the forum wanted access to, but they didn't. Wow. Thank, thank you for not putting anything stupid up there. Wow. Um, and uh, it wasn't until later in the day that I was able to get a hold of Twitter. And, they, and, and Crystal actually said, uh, sorry about that. Here's a new password for you. <laughs> but just shows you there were two things that they did wrong. One was that they had an admin who had a bad password. Dictionary word password. Right. The other was they didn't have a timeout. You could continue to enter passwords until you got in. So his brute force tool had no barriers to continuing to hit at it. Right. Terrible. I hope they pay a little more attention to security in the future. Well, it's the sort of thing, too, that, I mean, Twitter began life not being that big a deal. And right. look what's happened. I mean, it's become a really big deal. Right. And I think that's what happened is the, the kid who broke in said, I didn't really know uh, what it was. <laughs> I never heard of Twitter. I just exactly. I got in. I thought, oh, well, no big deal. What are they going to Who is, you know, he, he had no idea what a big deal it was. Right. Apparently, the Obama campaign did campaign contact uh, the Twitter management quite, quite rapidly saying, uh, guys, we got to fix this now. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And you have to wonder if somebody like Obama will be on a site like Twitter again, uh, given the risk inherent. Guillermo Garcia in Santiago, Chile, doesn't want to give up and reformat. He says, hi, I'm a longtime listener and a fan of the netcast. Currently, I'm setting up a date or two date with uh, past episodes. Yeah, I'm sorry. Currently, I'm getting up to date with past episodes. I just listened to episode 172 about Sandboxy. That made me wonder if there really is anything to do when you get malware on your computer. Sandboxy prevented this, but what about systems that are already compromised? I was listening to Leo on another one of his shows some week ago talking about how difficult it is to clean a system after it gets infected. I agree. I'm an IT person. I've been working with computers since my first 8088 many years back. I have some tools that I normally use when my informal clients, family, and friends get in trouble. But after all you've said, I get the impression it's futile. Maybe Steve can comment on his tools and procedures for an effective cleanup. I mean, apart from the obvious but normally painful complete system format and reload, is there anything else I can do? Thanks for the excellent show. Please keep it coming. I'm glad he asked this. I want to ask this because. Yeah. <clears throat> and the answer is no. I got a call on the radio show last weekend from a guy who says, I fix computers all the time and I have tools. He's recommended a website with some tools. And he said, I'm, I'm always able to get rid of everything. 
He really did say that, huh? He thought he uh, that, was. I think it, that's a kind of arrogance or cockiness on his part, to be honest. Yeah, with you. I think so too. I mean, as you know, we've talked about this. I wanted to sort of reiterate it. It's why I, I, I chose Gil, Gil, Guillermo's question. Is I've I've heard you, Leo, on on the um, radio show, tell people what I tell people, what I believe is that it is becoming really increasingly difficult to get rid of these things. They are there is so much technology now that is being brought to bear to make these tools, you know, impossible to find and impossible to root out that um, there just isn't any sort of like a, a blanket solution. Well, one I mean, of the things these guys do, they, they uh, attach themselves to system files. So if you were to remove it, you're now deleting the system file. So now you have to make sure to repair the system file um, right. if you can. Um, it just, it, it seems to me that there's two reasons. One is you'll spend, you could spend a lot of time trying to find everything. More time than it would take to just start over. Two well, is and you, you can, never know. You can never be sure. Exactly. You could never be sure. I, you know, what I tell people is pull all your documents and files off, you know, and then start again and then, and then put them all back on. This has know, an just, advantage. It, it takes time, but it has an advantage. You've got a good backup. Yes. And you also end up with a, a happier system. I mean, exactly. we all know that Windows systems sort of get corrupted over time. They just kind of get old. And so anytime you can start over and start fresh, you're not installing software that you installed once, but you never ended up using. It's sort of a chance to do some house cleaning. I mean, you, know, you may not choose to have spent your time that way, but I know of really nothing else you can do to be sure. I mean, this, th- these things now are so pernicious that there just there isn't a way to, to know that you got rid of everything. And so often, I, you know, we see examples of them popping back. You know, they, they appear after a few weeks of right. sort of going silent. Plus, I think that you are uh, impacting the stability of, of your system long term because you've pulled things out. You've torn things out. Um, you don't know what kind of impact that's going to have. And I, I just feel like your system's going to run better. You're going to be sure you got rid of everything. You're going to have a good backup. It's just healthful to do this. Well, and I've also heard you talking about, um, you know, various imaging tools. Um, we like Drive Snapshot. Yeah, really and, great. you know, to make a snapshot that then you've got your system in, a, in an easily recoverable mode right. that you can restore and then do backups from that. So, I mean, it, there, there are now tools and it's not like a second hard drive is that expensive any longer. Right. right. Yeah. Well, yeah, every time I install windows on a new machine and it's, I, I, I make an image with drive yep. snapshot, then I make an image of all the applications that I installed. You know, I get all the drivers, all the updates. So it's just nice. And that can be restored in 10 minutes. Exactly. Then you just restore your data. I mean, that's exactly. not a big deal. As long as you keep that snapshot up to date, I think that that's not a big deal. Yep. Jason's driving to Dallas. He's listening to our show, typing from an iPhone. <laughs> this guy had to get this question in. He says, I'm listening to your latest security now about SSL and uh, MD5 being broken. Brought up a few questions. I thought, oh, no, as I'm, I'm currently using TrueCrypt on my laptop. I'm pretty sure I chose AES, but I'm not so sure. What does this mean for my whole drive encryption? Even if I chose AES, does TrueCrypt use an MD5 hash? To help encrypt my drive, do I need to re-encrypt my drive? Is this vulnerability going to impact TrueCrypt? No. Yay. Yay. Yes. Uh, AE5 is completely separate from MD5 and SSL and SHA1 and all that. Um, TrueCrypt just uses, um, I mean, TrueCrypt may in fact be using hashing internally to verify integrity of things. I wouldn't be at all surprised, but it, it in no way does this does this mean you have a vulnerability because AES is so far completely unscathed in all of this uh, sort of security research. So it's related somehow. So that is that why he was concerned? No, I, I think it, it's just because he was. You know, I think probably um, Jason is. It's when he's not typing on his iPhone driving <laughs> to work. Um, he's using TrueCrypt, and that's sort of his his interaction with crypto stuff is through true crypt so he was just wondering you know is there any impact uh, right. on on you know on their crypto it's true crypt yeah. encryption and anything else and yeah. it, there is none yeah uh jared burford in australia can't locate paypal's one-time credit cards i had that same problem jared <laughs> it was hard to find but it may be there may be another reason he says hi guys i like their use idea of using paypal's one-time credit card number but I'm not sure if it's worldwide. I checked at paypal.com.au, uh, but I couldn't find it. Is it only available in the U.S. and Canada? I currently have my savings set up for PayPal payments, as I hate giving my credit card details to anyone, let alone to PayPal. But the use of this one-time pass might change my mind. Maybe I'm missing something. 
I had a hard time finding it. Yes, and I think that's the problem. Unfortunately, it's it's sequestered under the um, the main menu as plugin. And right. so it's, you know, they don't have, I mean, it's really dumb. I don't know why, but that's where it is. It's because it's sort of related to their plugin, their browser plugin. But does not but require on, so on the, it. Yeah. So on the main menu, you go to plugin and then you don't need the plugin. You don't need to use or install the plugin or anything because that's where then you can use the browser interface to create a one-time um, credit card number. So I wanted to let, to let everyone know that's where they've hidden it. And it's unfortunate that they've hidden it because it's a super nice and useful feature. I don't know whether it's available worldwide. I assume it is. I can't imagine why it wouldn't be. Um, but that's where it is located, Jared. So so take uh, try taking a look under plugin, and I'll, I'll bet you do find it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, these are the kinds of things that maybe there are different features in the you know, in the world. For instance, that football is not available exactly. worldwide. Exactly. So. Uh, Michael Keane in Black Mountain, Australia, also uh, from Australia, echoes the Hamachi death cries of many. Ah. Hi, Steve. For the last three weeks, uh, up until two days ago, Hamachi's mediation logon servers has seemed to be more down than up. They got sold to a company called LogMeIn. Right. Making it extremely frustrating and mildly embarrassing to use. See their forums for more. I thought I'd stumbled onto a good thing with Whippian. W-I-P-P-I-E-N. Another similar program turns out to be part, particularly unstable, and <laughs> I can never work out why. Even four PCs on my own land would pop in and out for a smoke whenever they felt like it before hanging with 100% CPU two days later. So, please keep thinking about CryptoLink. The world needs it, almost like they needed SpinRite. <laughs> well, I just, uh, I'm absolutely, CryptoLink is the next thing I'm going to do once I get caught up with my current little backlog of projects. And I did want to mention that I've, I've, because we did such a job of putting Hamachi on the map, unfortunately, we may have been indirectly responsible for Hamachi's demise because Alex, who wrote Hamachi, you know, sold it to log me in. And unfortunately, it's been having increasing problems ever since. They've changed the drivers. They've destabilized it. They've broken things. They, the server Hamachi's depends upon, you know, is tends to be unreliable. Um, my own tech support guy, Greg, uh, uses used to use Hamachi all the time and loved it, but you know began having more and more problems with it and has begun giving up on it. So, for what it's worth, CryptoLink will be designed not to need any sort of third-party support like this, specifically for this reason, because you know robustness and the ability to really get a, a connection all the time is is one of my main focuses. Um, so uh, I'm definitely going to move forward on CryptoLink uh, post haste. I'm happy for Alex. I'm glad he made some money off of it, but it's too bad that LogMeIn just can't seem to keep it going. Yeah. Hamachi, we should explain, is kind of a virtual networking solution, but it does require a third-party... Well, you could set up a Hamachi server of your own, right? I... Or does it have, need that intermediate third-party server? Don't remember now. There, that question came up, but I think that Alex had not made it public at the time. Oh. And I don't think so now. Oh, okay. So you have to you know, use this third-party server to... To get access to to use Hamachi, so the two machines could talk together, and if that server is down, you you get you don't get a connection. Right, Ben Franklin. I'm sorry, Brian Franklin, Ben's brother in Mesa, Arizona, brings us this week's brilliantly obvious in retrospect idea of the week. <laughs> it's another YubiKey idea. Hi, Steve. On Security Now episode 176, you mentioned how the YubiKey can now be configured to spit out a static password. For use with TrueCrypt, or as we mentioned earlier, with a WPA key, for instance. Right. However, if you only use the YubiKey's password, this would essentially be single-factor authentication. Yep. In this case, something you have, the YubiKey, right? It'd probably be worth noting you should use the YubiKey's static password as a supplement to your own password. For example, type your own memorized password, then use the YubiKey to append to what you already have. Oh, that, that what you've typed, just like the PayPal. Isn't that perfect? That's a great idea. So when yeah. PayPal, I, I enter in my text password, and then I append to it the six-digit code that comes off the football. You could do the same right. with the YubiKey. Uh, this way, you, you both get something you know as well as something you have, which would be next to impossible to know. I've been listening to episode one. Keep up the great work. I look forward to the release of your VPN and DNS utilities. Now, actually, if you're doing it for a router, you're already doing that, because to get into the router's administration uh, interface... You have to know a password, and then you would use the YubiKey. So that's two-factor. 
on a router. Correct. Correct. But in, in an instance, for example, like TrueCrypt, where they simply right. want a passphrase, right. Much better the idea of you know, adding your own stuff either before or after you, you touch the YubiKey, I mean, that's perfect. It gives yeah. you two-factor authentication. That way, somebody who gets your keys doesn't have access to, to your computer. Otherwise, they would because they'd get everything they need to from your YubiKey. But this way, you, you, know, you type your own little secret phrase, which, doesn't, which no longer has to be incredibly long and complex because you know, you're, you, you're able to rely on the YubiKey to repeat the incredibly long and complex gibberish every single time. Right. I just Great love idea. that. I use it. You know, my, I told you my bank does that. Bank of America does that. They send a key to my cell phone, so I need my password and that key. I just love that. If Twitter had used something like that, none of this would have happened. Right. Uh, uh, everybody should get Yubico. And here's another YubiKey from Sean M. Teffert in Montreal. He has a lot of love to go around, apparently. He offers the PayPal solution of the week. Steve, let me start by saying thank you for just being you. I love security now. I've been computing for 25 plus years. I'm always eager to listen to your podcast every Thursday and to glean that little morsel of techno cool from every episode. I can't thank you enough for telling me about the YubiKey. Not only is it a great security gadget, they have to be the bestest tech support team ever. I had a small issue. They responded immediately, proposed a good solution, even gave me something to offset the trouble I was having. They were polite to the point, and did I say this already? They have real people. I love Yubico. It's because they're Swedes, right? I just think they're nice people. Yep. This all leads me to my actual point. I believe I found a solution to the PayPal. I don't have my football login security issue. We talked about this the other day. Right. As you pointed out on one of your shows, the silly questions they ask are really not a great way to go around the fact you don't have your security token. In fact, they really open a big uh, security hole. They eliminate really the value that you've gained from the token, I think. Yes. So I devised a scheme where you can select any of the lame questions they have listed, but instead of using correct answers or even incorrect answers, I use my YubiKey static password. This way, nobody will ever guess the answer, and I can always <laughs> change it once I get my football back from where I left it. Of course, if you lose your YubiKey, then you're really in trouble. Please pass this on to all of your listeners as a little extra secure way to use PayPal. And tell them, Leo, I love him too, but not in that way. Not in the way he loves you, apparently. <laughs> so I thought that was a, a, good another idea. good idea. Yeah. You know, if, if, if they want to know your mother's maiden name, just have Yubico tell them and God help them guessing that. <laughs> it really is. It really is. Uh, uh, I love this Yubiki thing. It's just really cool. Yep. Really, really cool. See, we've come to the end of a great 12 questions. Boy, we have listeners that just... Thi- I love it doing a show where the people who listen are thinking while they're listening. I mean, they really are thinking hard. Whether while, they're to- driving and- while they're driving and typing yeah. with one hand. Yeah, whether it's to catch us out or to understand it better. Yep. I just think that's so cool. Yep. I want to encourage people and remind people I really do, we really do need and love their feedback, which they can provide at grc.com slash feedback. Yes. Yes, absolutely. We, uh, also encourage you to go to grc.com in general because, of course, that's the place where you get spin right. The world's best hard drive maintenance and recovery utility. A must-have for anybody. If you've got a hard drive, you ought to have a spin right as well. Um, and by the way, thank you for uh, sending a key along. Was it to Ryan Shroud? Who was it needed a no, key? No, I sent a copy of spin right to Paul because he was having Paul a Thrott. problem. That's right. Yeah. Very kind of you. That's really nice. I'm sure Happy Paul to. appreciates it. We'll talk about it tomorrow. Yeah. Cool. Um, also, uh, there you'll find the, the show, the show notes, the transcriptions, the 16 kilobit versions of the show, all of that stuff, grc.com slash security now. And when you're there, browse around Steve's free stuff. There's Shields Up to test your router. There's Wismo, that little gadget. I started recommending that on the radio show, Steve, because I get a lot of callers who say, uh, I can't get Windows to shut down. Yes. And I, that was a that question we had a couple of weeks ago where the guy said, well, Wismo did it not only with a shut down, dang it command, but it fixed it permanently. I thought that was great. Yeah. So um, that's a great tool to have. And a lot of well, I'm working. Stuff. I'm working right now on a DNS benchmark. I had I developed it actually oh. back in O2, back when I was doing that, that uh, experimentation um, on with DNS 
and uh, it never went public. It was called DNSRU, a DNS research utility, I called it. And it's been like the secret favorite of a whole bunch of people in our news groups ever since. I mean, they like they keep using it even though it expired and you have to hold both shift keys down when you start it in order to get around my little, uh, you know, not ready for prime time expiration timeout. Um, anyway, as part of this final DNS work that I've been doing, I decided we need to bring that back to life because, you know, so many people like it. So I oh, should have neat. another new, a new utility here before long. Well, thank you. You know, I think it would be great to have a page of uh, people submitting their, we'll do it in the forums, submitting their benchmarks for different DNS servers. You know, we recommend open DNS, but compare it to your internet service providers, DNS so, because I mean, yeah, having the fa- fast DNS server really speeds up your browsing. It's a good thing it, to have. It really makes a difference. And so, yeah. for example, we we've been talking about open DNS. The question is, you know, ba- based on where you're located, you know, are your ISP servers providing you results faster than open DNS? And I I developed a bunch of technology where, for example, I'm able to independently show the cached versus uncached performance of of DNS servers. Um, by server. So wow. that's, uh, and as far as I know, no one's ever really done a benchmark. So this will be a, a cool little bit new uh, piece of uh, new freeware from GRC. Very neato. Yeah. Next week, we are going to have a great, I promise, a fantastic episode delving into the intricacies and exactly how this whole cert- uh, certificate chain system operates so that if people listen, they will come away really getting it and and finally not being more confused than when they started. That I want to hear. But I guess I will, because I you never will miss indeed. an episode. <laughs> Steve Gibson, thanks for joining us. Great to see you. We'll see you next week on Security Now. Security Now.